Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme this morning on what is a wet and humid day here in the capital is Dr. Irene Apafure. Dr. Irene is the Executive Managing Director of Yvonne Lewis Group, a leading UK recruitment agency specialising in the supported housing sector. Um, Dr. Irene, good morning and thank you for joining us on the show. Good morning. It's a pleasure having you with us. Really is. Um, Isn't the nicest day for it, so just hopefully the weather improves, but luckily we're inside and away from the uh, the rain, aren't we? Um, I think that we should start the programme today by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that is the fact that we are recording this podcast on July the 5th, 2021. So we are still living under some form of COVID social restrictions, aren't we? And that's been the case now for the best part of the last 15 or so months. Um, Looking back over the pandemic period by and large, Irene, to what extent would you say that it's affected you and your business, Yvonne Lewis Group, please? Uh, Quite considerably, I would say. Uh, Initially, when COVID uh, hit the nation, we were all uh, sitting in our offices and working from our desk. And very quickly, we had to get our systems onto um, what we call Google Meet. So we got our technicians on board very quickly to get all of us connected so we can all work from home. So that was something we had to do very, very quickly. cost us a bit of money, but so far all our information are now somewhere in the cloud and all my staff are working from home. So uh, a drastic change there. Um, People that are not familiar with sitting at home, it, it was a struggle initially. The older group of staff were actually struggling. They wanted to come to the office. But of course, they couldn't. But mm. I find that the younger members of staff, they enjoyed it. They liked it. And they were quick to um, get working. And they were, some of them were very effective working from home than when they used to come to the office. So how it affected us, we had to quickly change all our processes, all the way that we work, and put everything right there in the cloud so we can get access to our information from wherever we are. Mm. And on the whole, how would you say your sort of workforce has adapted to working remotely? And do you think that you're going to stick with it for the long-term future? Yes, some of them have indicated that they want to stick with it on the long run. So, so far as we are today, we just have a system where one person goes to the office uh, one day a week. So, Mm. majority of them still work from home. I go to the office twice a week and the administrator goes there once a week but the finance lady comes there again once a week uh, like I said before the younger members of staff are happy to work from home but I have three mature ladies who would rather come to the office and they're happy to, to come in once the office is open full time they'd rather be here full time 
And with regards to sort of mental health and well-being during the pandemic, you did mention that some of the sort of older members of staff um, sort of had one or two reservations about working from home. They've wanted to obviously come back to the office, but safety concerns have obviously meant that that couldn't happen until now when some restrictions have been lifted and it's deemed safer to go back into workplaces. So to sort of keep on top of any sort of anxieties or fears around COVID, especially when you've all been working at a distance, um, what sort of steps have you put in place to make sure that everyone is in sort of the right state of mind? Right. Um, those of us that are over 40 and above with all being vaccinated, mm-hmm. the younger ones, uh, well, many of them are not, are not vaccinated yet, but Things that we've put in place is the usual, the usual um, washing of hands. We've got the sanitizer right in front of our desk as soon as you come into the office. And we're working uh, one person in a room at each time. So, And I find one of the consultants actually have gone straight to the training room. So he's based in the training room now. And another one works from the boardroom. So you find that they just use spaces in the office mm. to keep their own distance. Uh, in terms of well-being, a member of staff that I know was quite concerned because she has an older uh, husband, gentleman, much older. So for her, we've just allowed her to stay home because we didn't want to risk her coming to the office. And, and you know, she, she was very worried that if she had come and something happened. So we just allowed her to work from home. And she's worked from home all that period. And she's still working from home. Uh, so mm-hmm. far, so good. None of us have caught COVID and everyone seems to be fine and well. But we have managed it in such a way because we work in the supported housing sector. Many of our, our clients, our end users of our services are in supported housing. So we understand the effects or the impact of um, you know, people not feeling very well in themselves, especially when it comes to mental health and things like that. So we take all the measures, making sure that our well-being environment. Uh, we give people the space to do what they want to do. Uh, we don't force anyone to come into the office. But we find that people were effective working from home. Anyone that's indicated that they want to come to the office will uh, assess the situation and we can allow them to come. But so far, we're fine working from home. And although it's been sort of a very tricky experience over the last year or so, adapting to um, the sort of demands that COVID has thrust upon you, would you say that having to do that has made you stronger as a business leader and as a company and that you've actually learned quite a lot from this experience? I'm not sure. We're gonna, I don't think I'll boldly say it's made us stronger. Certainly uh, the challenge was there. And how we dealt with the challenge uh, perhaps was the reason why we're still here. We survived it, so to speak. But it was a challenging time. Uh, it was a time also where I had to uh, seek the support of my uh, board of advisors. You know, I think I was the one that probably felt it the most, the changes that were coming on board. Yes, we can say it sort of made us stronger uh, personally, but I think it has considerable impact on the business. We saw a period where the business uh, income was very low, mm. uh, and, and which means uh, directors like myself have to think a little bit more, uh, bring things to the table, be a little bit dynamic. How do we keep people uh, working, 
keep their jobs safe and see think think about ideas how can we make the business uh, survive the the pandemic so sometimes we we went into areas that we usually would not cover we especially in the supported housing sector in that period we were able to do some other work called conscious supervision which many of us have have access to uh, those kind of skills as well or have uh, skills in those areas as well so as a director of the company most of the responsibility rests with me, you know, to think about ways to keep the business afloat and keep our workers uh, busy. And our workers, not just the ones in our offices, the ones that are working with our clients. So we have social workers, we have supporting our officers going to the clients. And um, many of them were busy initially because I think the government had uh, an initiative where they were getting all homeless people from the streets and putting them in, in hotels, like, you know, mm. some of these uh, three-star hotels, IDs and, and the likes. So some of our clients actually won those businesses, won those contracts where the government wanted to remove um, homeless people from the street. Our workers were the ones that were working with them in this hotel. So we were very busy for about three, four months within the period of um, April last year. Still around, yeah, April, July, still around July. And then again, uh, we had uh, another high period around August where the government was very keen to see that we bring the rate of the pandemic, I mean, the rate of um, people catching uh, the virus down. So that's what that's what we did. Whether mm. it made me stronger, I'm not sure, but, mm. uh, <laughs> but we're here. Yeah, and I suppose, of course, you can think that you've sort of taken away quite a lot from this experience in terms of having learned so much from having to guide your business through. And we are at a point now where we're looking ahead to the 19th of July and it looks as if social restrictions are going to be lifted. Um, Ahead of that date, is there real optimism within your company, would you say, that things can start to really move forward now and get back to some kind of normality? Very much so, very much so. I'm particularly excited. Um, we're getting ourselves ready. I think we're already seeing changes, to be honest with you. We're already seeing uh, changes in the business with the good changes, which means uh, business is improving, so to speak. We have a lot of work. In fact, today after my interview with you, I'm interviewing a new member of staff, mm-hmm. hopefully to join the team. So we're beginning to... Um, see some kind of a good traction there in the, in the right direction. So um, things are improving. So I'm certainly very excited for, uh, you know, the pandemic to be over, as mm. we say, but for the government to give us the green light to say we can all return, return to the offices. Having said that, we think that a number of our staff would remain at home. So we're setting our offices up in such a way that people come to the office maybe maximum twice a week. But the vast majority of the time, they'll work from home. So that's where we're going. And just lastly, before I let you go, Irene, over the next 12 months, as hopefully we leave COVID behind and move into the post-pandemic world, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at the Yvonne Lewis Group by this time next year? Oh, interesting. By this time next year, we're hoping that um, businesses back to normal, full normal, as 
where we were in 2018 mm-hmm. and possibly surpassing, you know, that, uh, that kind of level. We're hoping to grow the team. Uh, many of them have become, you know, more mature over the last few years. So we're also looking to open new departments. One of them will include the healthcare sector properly because we, we understand that we have a shortfall of, I believe, I'm not sure, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think about 70,000 um, healthcare workers nationally that is required. Mm. So it doesn't have a shortfall of about 70,000. So we're looking also to expand our business to include perhaps other healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, and physiotherapies and, and people like that. Mm, expanding your offering, growing the business. It seems as if you've got plenty planned over the course of the next year, Dr. Irene, and I wish you all of the luck in the world in making those plans a reality. And I think as we Thank start you. to see as well what the post-COVID world is going to bring to our doorstep, I'd actually love to catch up and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are getting on at Yvonne Lewis, because I've really enjoyed having you on the programme with us. It's been a real eye-opener for me. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. Thank you as well, Irene. And please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything going on because we're not quite there yet, but I'm confident the better days are ahead of us. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. I would also extend that message to all of our listeners tuning into the show today. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. Um, For me today, it was a pleasure to welcome Dr. Irene Apafure onto the programme. And coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be sharing his take on the COVID-19 situation and his hopes for the weeks and the months ahead. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can Uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000. All all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? 
Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of 
moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they you know shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation not incarceration it was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, 
living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think they'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in 
Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, uh, shutdown. Um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision one of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world except for the very poor has been the distribution of food a lot of it on computerized uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down we'd be in real trouble so i think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well so have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. 
and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to 
business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging and um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting 
developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.